Hello, Velo News listeners. It is Dan Cavallari, tech editor at Velo News Magazine, here with another Velo News Tech podcast. And today uh, we are going to talk about some uh, some important considerations when uh, designers are making bicycles. Uh, a lot of things affect how your frame looks, how it feels, uh, how the drivetrain operates, and and really what even what axle sizes you can use, what tire sizes you can use. And it's more than just slapping it together. It's more than just uh, saying, this is the kind of bike we want, so this is what we're going to make. One of the key factors to bike design has to do with your drivetrain, and it's a term you've all heard, chainline. So I wanted to talk about what chainline is and how it drives bicycle design uh, and drivetrain design uh, and, and how it really affects your bike in general and why it's important in the first place. Why do we even care about chain line. And that's become increasingly important with uh, the proliferation of uh, one-by drivetrains. Uh, and the good thing is, you know, now drivetrain design is so good uh, and components are so strong that, you know, you, you're not going to wear out your, your chain or your drivetrain after one ride unless you're a real beast. I, I'm not a real beast, so I, I don't tend to wear stuff out too quickly. But chain line matters more than just in terms of where. I mean, we think about it in terms of cross-chaining and, oh, you could break a chain. There's a lot more to it. So I wanted to get a sense of what goes into determining a bike's chain line and why it matters to bike design. So I, I got in touch with Anthony Medaglia, and he is the Road Chief Systems Engineer at SRAM. Anthony, thanks for joining me today. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, Dan. Did I totally butcher your last name or did I get it right? Uh, you nailed it. All right. Yeah, yeah all those, those quiet Gs always trip people up. Uh, all right. So Anthony, let's, let's start big picture. Um, first of all, can you give people a little bit of an understanding of why you're the guy to talk to about this? What exactly do you do at SRAM? Um, well, I'm the chief system engineer for our road drive chain and really my responsibility is, uh, kind of governing the architecture that we use to, uh, that we, you know, for our road drive trains, essentially, um, you know, making trade-off decisions between components and things like that. Um, you know, when, when you develop a, a road grupo, for example, you have a bunch of development teams working on the individual components, uh, and then you need somebody who provides a technical oversight to assure the grupo as a whole is going to work and meet uh, our requirements. So that that's basically what I do. Mm -hmm. So you herd cats, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> or herd dead cats. That's another one. Right. Like, right. That's actually oh, it, 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 the the teams here are actually they're it, it, it's not quite like that. <laughs> for for comedy's sake, we'll just go with it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's start uh, top down here. What is chainline? Um, well, chainline it, it's it's a essentially it's a dimension. It's a distance from the frame center line to um, a reference in your front drivetrain. And that reference, say, in a two-by setup, uh, we, we just use the average distance between the tooth midplanes. So kind of halfway between your, your inner ring and your outer ring. Um, and then on a one-by, it's just the tooth midplane of, of, of the single chain ring. Okay. Um, and is that measured in, in millimeters? Uh, whatever unit system you, you prefer, but yeah, we use, we use millimeters. Okay. So, so, so basically if you're at home, 
uh, envision a line drawn from the center of your bottom bracket shell. In most cases, it's not always the case, I guess, with asymmetrical designs and everything, but pretty consistently. The center point of the bike, if you drew a line from the very middle of your frame to if you're on a one by drive chain to your basically to your chain ring. And if you're yeah. on a, if you're on a two by system between the two chain rings. That's, yeah. that's right. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. That's that's good and clear. Now, what why does it matter? Why does chain line matter? How does it affect the way a drivetrain operates? Well, when we're designing drivetrains, you it's something we need to establish kind of early on. Uh, we need to know where the chain rings are going to live so all the other components and everything can be designed to accommodate that. Um the rear drivetrain, you know, aligns to the front in some manner, and depending on where you place your chain rings, that determines sort of your your chain angles and things like that. So that that's going to govern things like your front derailleur design, uh, detailed design of your chain ring tooth, teeth, your spacing, your F, you know FD cage features, th things like that, and, e and even some of the the rear drivetrain is affected by it too. Um, those are just uh, a, a few of the factors that that, that are influenced by uh, by chain line. Okay, so what's so here's the chicken and the egg question. I mean, what what comes first when you're designing a bike? Is it is this designed around a specific frame, or does chain line uh, get established first, and then you you fit everything else to that? Well. Uh, Really, what we try to accommodate are our, our, our customers' needs here, and by our customers, I mean our our, our OEMs who who design frames. And it it kind of all starts with the tire and the wheel size um, and your chainstay length. So these are all sort of you know frame and bike design variables uh, that we start with. You know, how wide of a tire do you want? What's the diameter of the wheel? How short are the chainstays? Because all of that volume there kind of lives in this critical area near the bottom bracket. And I, I call that kind of valuable real estate in there. Uh, and then if you're going to have a double ring system, you've got to make room for the front derailleur and make sure that doesn't interfere with the, interfere with the wheel. Um, so that kind of governs how far inboard you could, where your chain rings can live because you need room for a chain stay, mm -hmm. right? And you need enough room so that the frame can meet its, you know, strength and stiffness design requirements. Uh, and then you also got to consider the gearing, right? Um, <clears throat> how large are the chain rings? Um, and, that, and that's another factor. And then on the other side of that, you've got uh, you know, a Q factor, right? You know, how how wide do you want your pedaling stance to be? So that that's another that's another input you put in there. And then when all is said and done, you kind of have this this window of where the chain rings can live here, right? Um, and then we play around with where we want that to be to optimize a whole bunch of factors, and that sort of defines chain line. Mm -hmm. uh, and is it uh, is it generally good practice to get the chain rings as close inboard as you can? I mean, is there a benefit to that, or is there is there some sort of sweet spot depending on on the design of the frame? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is an optimization problem. If 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 you're not running into a, a chainstay clearance issue, um, you know, you, you can go too far inboard, for example, right? And then you could sacrifice some, you know, there's some consequences if you're too far inboard with the rear drive frame, some other things. But uh, yeah, usually you're kind of frame limited, right? But 
we have some latitude with we we could put the chain line the front chain line in a couple you know in, in a range of positions and then as long as we're designing the the drivetrain for that it, it's fine we could we could accommodate it over a wide range but you know the drivetrain has to be designed for it mm-hmm. now i guess my question is now once you've gotten the parameters that you're operating within in terms of the wheel size and you know the chain stays and the frame size and all this stuff why is it important to get the chain line correct in terms of drivetrain performance? So the the drivetrain itself was, was designed with 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 a nominal position for for your chain rings, right? So and and then on top of that, we we want to assure robust performance over an expected range of variability, and that that's just terminology for you know frames are never going to be perfectly aligned. Um, and we're also designing for a range of chainstay lengths and, you know, tolerances in our own parts, tolerances in the frames. So everything is designed, you know, it, it's optimized around nominal and it'll work if it's off a little bit. But if you if you shift that intentionally, you could be, you know, eating into a buffer of uh, performance, you know, that we've purposely designed in. Um, so, you know, your mileage may vary depending on what side of the tolerance your frame was on or your crank set was on and a number of things. So it's, it's best just to set it up the way it was intended and it was designed for and just kind of leave it there. So is it, is it more about durability than it is about, uh, you know, shifting smoothness, for example? Uh, it's, it, it's both. It, it, it's, it influences all of that stuff, really. Um, you know, your, your, your shifting performance obviously can be affected. Um, I mean, I mean y- you name it. I mean, there, there are some performance factors that are more sensitive than others. Um, so it, it, it's a bit difficult to, to quantify all those in a conversation. But um, yeah, there's, there's wear, there's noise, there's, you know, a little bit of efficiency, there's, you know, shifting performance is probably the one that's most sensitive, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, it's, it, it's kind of all those things. Mm-hmm. Now for, for a long time, uh, in, in the road world, you know, the, the hub spacing was a lot narrower. Um, and then, you know, it started getting wider and then disc brakes came around and, and through axles and all of a sudden we're getting these wider spacing. Was, was there sort of a conventional wisdom about chain line before the advent of all these, um, you know, axle standards, tire widths getting bigger? Was there some sort of like, uh, you know, if you're a bike designer, you know uh, what the ideal chain line or, or vaguely, you know, what that chain line range should be? Or was it sort of always this uh, guesswork or not guesswork, but sort of, you know, you have to really dive into it? Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of that was already kind of established, you know, so uh, in, in you're kind of limited to some other things beyond, you know, our control, like, you know, where is the front derailleur mount uh, and things like that. And then uh, how do we how do we make sure we're, we're being, you know, we're, we're competitive with, you know, we, we've got competitors that also make drivetrains, right? And if, if, if we establish, say, a chain line that's, uh, you know, chain ring positions that are a lot narrower, um, then we get in this position where uh, we might not fit on bikes that you know our customers are designing that our competitors' product fits on, right? So th- there's a little bit of that going on too. So sometimes you just you design to you know the de facto standard, and uh, you go from there. Mm-hmm. 
and and how did, how is the perception of Chainline in in your line of work? It's especially uh, how has it changed as it relates to you know the advent of one by and twelve speed. Um, so with with one by um, basically what we did we we were able to you know move the chain line. It's essentially it's similar to what it is on a two by the, the the single chain ring lives in between where the inner and outer ring lived previously mm-hmm. and that's largely governed by you know what's the largest chain ring we're going to provide and what is the current um you know uh, envelope we're designing against for chain state clearance so we kind of moved the chain ring in as far as we could until you know we, it, we were sure we weren't going to have chain state interference issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of ends up halfway in the middle. Okay. So. Now, I, I guess, you know, one of the things that people think, you know, from the consumer end about chain line, uh, you know, having, I, I was a shop rat forever. And, you know, one of the things that drove people mad was, you know, derailleur, front derailleur rub when you were cross-chaining or things like that. And it would drive people crazy and they would always come in saying, oh, the chain line this, the chain line that. Is that really a function of chain line or is that something else? Well, I mean, f- first of all, I, th- I think we're at a point where I don't, the, the end consumer shouldn't even have to worry about chain line or what it is or if it's wrong or if it's right. Uh, they should just be able to put it all together and it just works, right? Um, and w- we've evolved, you know, qu- quite a ways where you, we can set up a bike nowadays and not not have rasp chain rasp in the FD across the entire range, you know, with with the properly adjusted FD, and that of course assumes, you know, the chain line is you know set and solid and isn't going to be moved around. And it's you know it's a variable we don't really we feel like we don't need to expose to the user to adjust. It's just keep it simple. Let, let's just fix that and then make up for all the adjustment in say the front derailleur. Mm-hmm. So, so somebody was coming in and saying, Oh, my, my front derailleur is rubbing. It's probably something within an adjustment that's wrong. Not, not necessarily, you know, it's, it, in other words, it's a misconception that this is a chain line issue. The chain line should already be sort of fixed before the, exactly. dri- the drivetrain even lands in the consumer's hand. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So one of the key misconceptions about Chainline is its relation to cross-chaining and the idea that cross-chaining is a bad thing that should be avoided at all costs. Can you talk a little bit about the relation of cross-chaining to Chainline and and really what are those misconceptions about cross-chaining? I mean, is it always a bad thing? Uh, you know, not, not necessarily. Um, you know, I, I think that the two things that, that tend to come up when we talk about cross-chaining that people uh, fixate on is, you know, efficiency is one, and then where is the other. Um, you know, starting with where, uh, you know, we design our drive trains to accommodate cross-chaining. And uh, our, our wear test, actually, we, we, we run our wear test in a cross-chained configuration Um and so we make sure it'll wear appropriately uh, when we're cross-chained. Um, and there's there's also you know subtle design variables we can tweak again in the chain, the cogs, and the rings 
that can improve wear tremendously, actually, even in a cross-chain condition. So I don't think the wear concern is, is really too much to worry about. Um, and then efficiency was the other one. So when it, when it comes to efficiency, everyone seems to be quick to point out, oh, cross-chaining your efficiency just drops off the cliff and it's no good. But if you actually look at the efficiency studies that have been performed, and there's one by Spicer that's pretty, pretty popular to cite, uh, and a couple other individuals have gone and kind of corroborated um, that study, uh, you know, the, the the size of your cogs and your rings have a much larger influence on efficiency than than cross chaining. I mean, cross chaining is is it's there, yeah. It, your efficiency does go down a little bit, but it's not as bad as a lot of people make it seem. If you actually dig into the numbers, I think even Friction Facts even did a did a pretty decent comparison, and again, that sort of corroborated um, the Spicer study. Um, and I think it, you know, they do their test at 250 watts and if you know basically the same gear there's like a three quarter of a watt difference that's that's pretty minuscule you're talking less than a well less than a percent like a third of a percent of efficiency it's it it's not that big of a deal i think you need to compare that with you know other potential benefits right you know sometimes with a dual ring system your cross chain big being big because you didn't want to make that front shift because there was going to you know some time involved to execute that shift and maybe you're you're trying to keep up with the pack right and you don't want to you don't want to deal with a front shift and you don't want to get dropped um so you know on a one by system there there is no front shift and and that's that can be a benefit you know there's i'm, I'm curious if, having, sorry go, go ahead. ahead i was gonna say no, I, I um i'm curious you know Wear is one thing, but what about uh, lateral stress on the chain? Does that come into play at all? You know, if I if I torque down really hard and I you know and I'm cross chained, you mm -hmm. know, am I going to break a chain or warp to another dimension or like what are the what are the risks of that? Are there any risks? Very unlikely. Very yeah. Unlikely. Very. Yeah. Okay. So the stress on the so the the chain is essentially designed to withstand those forces. Yeah. Yeah. The the failure modes of chains typically aren't due to, to loads like that. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you've ever had, you know, some sort of bike design come your way or a combination of parameters. And, it, and you just said, this is never going to work. We can never make a chain line that's going to work for this. Does that ever happen? Um, well, if it does, you, you, you could say, well, we got to move the rear drive train out with it. Right. Okay. <laughs> Um, I mean, there is a point where, yeah, you, you get, you, your design space just gets closed if you're, if you're too drastic, um, in your, your front to rear alignment. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, there, there is, there's a little bit of room to move the rear drivetrain out that that's what happened with, with boost, right? The rear drivetrain followed the front. Um, uh, and then as long as, you know, if your if your Q factor stays the same, you, you kind of hit a limit there cause you don't want to hit your heels on the back of the bike. Um, but I, I don't think we've encountered something quite like that. I mean, we've been through the, the fat bike phase and, you know, we you know, put wider spindles and really wide chain lines, but they also have really wide hubs on them too. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think you, there, there is a point where you, you know, if you're trying to say, make a fat bike with a 135 rear end, you're, you're going to run into problems simply because, you know, the chain won't clear the tire. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> And just, yeah. just for reference, for those listening, if you're not familiar with hub spacing, 
you know, 135 is a fairly typical quick release spacing, whereas one, uh, 142 is, is a through axle type spacing. But then you get into fat bikes, and I believe my fat bike has 197 millimeter spacing. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of the broad range of hub sizes we're talking about here. So what we're asking our drivetrains to do uh, changes with, you know, as Anthony said, with essentially with tire size, uh, because as, yeah. your, as your tire size increases, the frame has to increase as well to accommodate that tire. When your frame size increases, well, your hub also has to go wider to accommodate. So it's all a series of, of considerations that sort of are working together. Um, so it's not simply a matter of saying, you know, our drivetrain has 12 gears and one chain ring up front, and this is how we're going to make our chain line. Well, that may work for one bike, but it may not work for the vast majority of others. So again, the drivetrain seems to be operating within a range rather than within specific parameters. Does that sound accurate, Anthony? Yeah. Okay. What other things uh, about a drivetrain for, should a consumer be concerned with? You know, if I'm shopping around and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I want to want to upgrade my drivetrain. Uh, if if chainline isn't really something that a consumer has to worry about, if it's sort of predetermined, predestined from the, the factory, what are some considerations that this consumer should think about uh, either going from brand to brand or from mechanical to electric, you know, electronic, excuse me, what, what are the considerations that the consumer can actually choose between aside from just, you know, uh, this one's lighter? Well, I think uh, the gearing choice, you know, our drivetrains offer quite a bit different gearing options. Um, you know, on, on one by on the mountain, you've got all the different chain ring sizes. Um, and on the road, you got all the cassettes and the different chain ring sizes. So I think it's a matter of just determining, you know, what, what your gearing needs are, right? What your realistic gearing needs are. And um, I, I like to start with, okay, what, what's, what's the longest, steepest hill you climb? And what's the gear you need to get up that, right? right. <laughs> uh, make sure you have that covered. Uh, everything on the top end, I think, you know, unless you're a cat one racer or something and you're trying to, you know, stay, stay in the pack in the Tuesday World Championship ride at lunch, um, you know, the, the, the top end isn't super important. Um, just get yourself a gear that can get you up the hill and, you know, that you can have a good time. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm curious about cassettes. Uh you know, we've seen obviously the the progression from nine speed to ten speed to eleven speed, and now, you know, I think Campy just came out with their twelve speed. Um, how does that design? And you guys are, I mean, at, at this point, SRAM is is still solidly in the eleven speed range. Um, and I, you know, I, I'll ask, of course, if you guys are planning a twelve speed road drivetrain, and you can give me the standard no comment if you want. Um, are you guys developing a twelve speed road drivetrain? <laughs> I can't comment on ah. that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, in any event, as as those gears increase and have increased over time, uh, have the have the consideration does that have a, a consideration in chain line or is it is it really just already constrained because your hub spacing isn't changing? Like does does that actually does the, the number of cogs in your cassette actually have any effect on the on chain line considerations? Um, you know, a, a little bit. I mean, you, you put another cog in there, you're, you're making 
all your cogs a little thinner or you're kind of holding them the same thickness and putting them closer together and making up for it in the thickness of the chain plates. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, you're, you know, I think the way we've done it in the past, if you, there's, all, there's a little bit more inboard position on that number one cog. So you're also designing a new set of chain rings along the way when you do that, right? So when the chain ring designers are designing the rings, they're, they're, they're making up for that, as is the front derailleur designer. So, yeah, th there's a consideration there. But then we still want to maintain, you know, our frame clearances that we've already established, right? So we're, we get kind of locked there. Mm -hmm. What are the major hurdles when you're developing a new drivetrain? I mean, if it, it seems like chain line is sort of not a minor consideration, but it's certainly not the primary one. Uh, you, no. And you guys, I mean, you guys sort of had a revolutionary moment with ETAP. What, what went into developing it and what was the sort of... Uh, the major challenge structurally and in an engineering sense uh, when developing a brand new drivetrain essentially from scratch? <laughs> uh, where do I start? Um, <laughs> well, I, th I think the, the first things first, if, if you're, if you're gonna, going to go with a new chain design, right, it, it's getting all the needs and wants of, of all the, you know, I'll call them the cog tech designers, the, the front drivetrain and the rear drivetrain designers, getting all the needs and wants uh, for the chain designed into the chain because it's you, you kind of need the chain to really start doing the, you know, the prototyping and the, you know, the testing and the design iteration. So, uh, you know, you kind of get everybody in a room and we go through, hey, here, here's what we've learned from what we've done in the past. Here's all, Here's our wish list of stuff. And uh, let's start. Let's start prototyping it and you know, getting that, getting that into the chain, and you know, debating the pros and cons. And then you inevitably have you know some design features the front drivetrain wants that might have a negative effect on the rear drivetrain. And then it's it's you know kind of a back and forth and judging those trade offs and and getting that stuff you know <laughs> decided and determined and moving it forward. Right. But, I think that's kind of the first the first hurdle that you hit, mm -hmm. and then of course you know all kinds of stuff down the line. Sure. So you guys yeah. have actually you have different teams working on different drivetrain components. You have a rear derailleur team and a front derailleur team and a chain team. Yeah, I I, I actually call them the rear drivetrain and front drivetrain teams. Uh -huh. uh, so you know there you can sort of modularize the development there because you know your front derailleur and your chain rings. Kind of need to work together so you, th those teams work very closely together and your rear derailleur and your cassettes you know are, are very dependent on each other so those teams work together mm -hmm. uh there's there's a little bit of dependence between the front and the rear so we always obviously we have a lot of meetings but um it, it, it's less so between say the front derailleur and rings and rear derailleur and, and, and cassette uh -huh. oh. you, when you guys get in a room do you guys make the rear derailleur guys sit at the back of the room and the front derailleur guys sit at the front <laughs> No, haven't haven't tried that. No. One, but yeah, it's an interesting idea. And the front <laughs> the front derailleur guys come in the room, and the rear derailleur guys are like, "Oh God, it's front derailleur guys." Like, don't don't talk to them. I like to envision, you know, little <laughs> little strife, little internal strife, little tension makes for a good drivetrain. <laughs> um, let's talk about chains specifically because that does seem to be the pivotal component of a drivetrain. Uh, yeah. 
what what makes a good chain? What what uh, I, I mean, we're talking about individual components within a chain. There's plates and there's pins. I mean, what can you really do to change how a chain functions? Um, you, you'd be surprised. There's a lot of subtlety to the chain design. I mean, if you if you start if you took took apart a bunch of different brands of chains and took a really close look at them and started measuring them and just just looking at them, you could, you could see that the features, the chamfers, and everything are always a little different. Um, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot you can do in the chain <laughs> just to put it briefly. But, uh-huh. um, and but it's a big investment in tooling too. And, you know, to prototyping a chain is, is challenging. You got to make a lot of links and, and, and that kind of stuff. So it, it's something you want to kind of iron out early mm-hmm. uh, because if you change something in it, it really cascades, you know, both to the front and rear drivetrain. So, mm-hmm. So is that the is that the launching point? For example, for when you were developing ETAP, uh, was that the launching point? Was the chain was developed first with the idea in mind that this is what we're going to do? You know, we want to make this drivetrain. Uh, let's start with the chain, or did the chain already exist? Well, well, yeah. In the case of ETAP, we were already on our 11-speed drivetrain, so we kind of reused what we call the mechanical stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, really, the ETAP development was was the electronics part of the system. I see. In the hoods, that that was the bulk of that development effort. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the chain guys were just they just got to kick their feet up during that whole development. <laughs> now they're always working on something. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, we had I think we had Eagle in progress at the time, so right. they were working and stuff mm-hmm. and that's an interesting segue then so you know when when you guys are working on eagle and for those of our listeners who are not mountain bikers eagle is is sram's uh one by 12 system on the mountain bike side uh that would require a new chain yes eagle yeah yeah and and uh what's different about that from the 11 speed chain um so when we did one by 11 i think uh they largely inherited what we had as the um, the eleven speed road chain. Mm-hmm. I mean, those those are those very similar in designs. Um, now the eleven speed road chain has accommodations for uh, you know front shifting. E- Eagle, you know, one by eleven mountain didn't didn't need that. Um, <clears throat> Eagle didn't need that. So they, they, they basically had a couple things on their list that I was talking about before, things they would like to do, um, you know, if they had their druthers. So they were able to implement that in, in the Eagle chain. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about the difference between a mountain bike drivetrain and a road drivetrain, you know, for example, we're seeing, we're now seeing one by drivetrains crop up on road bikes, uh, specifically with, you know, 3T uh, and you know, they're, they're now, they have a one by, uh, bike. What's, are there differences between a one by system on a road bike and a one by system on a mountain bike? Um, I mean, the, the subtlety there is, is the, uh, kind of as actually the chain line, to be honest. Well, here we are <laughs> as, full circle. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, you've got the, uh, you've got, you know, the narrower tires and all that. And, you know, we, we, we adapted to existing road cranks and stuff like that. So you can't, it, it becomes challenging to put, you know, a road chain ring that far outboard on a mountain bike sort of chain line. It's unnecessary to, so. Um, what, what am I missing about this conversation? I feel like, you know, in terms of drivetrain development, big picture, you know, chain line is a consideration and, 
the chain is a consideration and rear derailleur is a consideration. What's the big picture uh, when I'm thinking about, you know, when I'm hearing about chain line and all these terms thrown around, am I missing something about this conversation? I mean, is, is there something about drivetrains that our consumers absolutely need to know about their drivetrain that we're not touching on? Um, I mean, the only comment I have is it's designed to work as a system, right? And, you know, the front drivetrain and the rear drivetrain are designed to work together. You know, they assume things like the chain line is set in this particular place by design. Um, they assume things like this is designed for, you know, the SRAM chain. It works best with it. Um, you know, and, you know, it, it, it's basically a, a system. And, you know, if you start mixing and matching things like, you know, definitely you know, in the old days, people used to do that, you know, and, you know, your mileage may vary. But but nowadays, I think we've we've taken advantage of the system level design that it, it made things work really, really well. As you mentioned earlier, you know, today's drivetrains compared to you know a decade or 15 years ago, they work phenomenally. And part of that is because we've taken a holistic approach to the design. So. You know, the ability to, you could swap stuff in and out, but then you might be taking a performance hit somewhere that, you know. All right. That you may not want to incur. <laughs> right, right, right. So to sum it all up, basically chain line probably doesn't really matter much to you anymore as a consumer. Uh, it sounds like it's something that is that comes in development uh, when they're developing a drivetrain for a certain type of bike. And it's not something that you're going to have to adjust or, or uh, contend with as a consumer, unless there's something really strangely crazy going on with your bike. Uh, but just as a, as a, for a sense of understanding, the chain line is the distance between the center of your frame and the center of your front uh, chain ring setup, whether that's a one by or a two by. And that's a parameter that allows engineers to develop uh, their drivetrain in the most efficient way possible that will accommodate uh, the rear spacing of, of the, the tire, uh, of the wheel, uh, the hub spacing, and, and all the other amazing things that manufacturers are coming up with, the, with these days to make your bike a more fun thing to ride. Um, so when you're dealing with uh, buying a new drivetrain, it's really it really simplifies things here because what that means for you as a consumer is you can basically go out and buy the drivetrain that makes sense for you in terms of gearing, in terms of shifting layout, uh, in terms of cost and weight. Uh, so you you have your own set of parameters that are much simpler to contend with than the guys who are actually in the room developing the drivetrain. Does that sound about right to you, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, I think the only caveat there is, you know, if if you're if you get a mountain bike, if you have a, a boost spacing or you know old, older 142 spacing, you, you just need to know that you need the boost crank or the non-boost crank, which is actually just a chain ring. There's a boost chain ring and a non-boost chain ring, but that's, that's pretty straightforward. Sure. So talking to your, your local bike shop is probably your best bet there. Anthony, yeah, thank you very much for joining me today and for explaining uh, a very complicated uh, term that uh, now I know I don't really have to ever deal with. <laughs> yeah. And for uh, all of our listeners today, uh, if you have specific questions about this topic that we spoke about today, or if you have recommendations for topics uh, for us to cover in the future on this podcast, please feel free to tweet at Brown Tie Dan. That's me. 
or at Vela News. And of course, feel free to comment on Facebook. Thank you very much for listening today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.